Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Six Points Coaching, the podcast. Today's episode is with Ryan Daniels, the Channel 7 and Triple M sports journalist. He's the guy who broke the news about Lockie Neal leaving Frio and going to Brisbane, so he clearly you know, knows where to get the information about all the hot news stories in the AFL. So this episode was recorded a few weeks before the AFL Grand Final, but we had a really good chat, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy the insight that he shares. So let's just get straight into it. So firstly, have you been playing AFL 9s um, much lately? No, I haven't. I, um, I reckon it's been about four or five years. I, I went up for a mark, broke my finger pretty badly. It's my, it was my wedding ring finger, and it sort of was um, out like to the side. <laughs> um, and so I had to have some surgery on that, and uh, I was sort of, because um, I play basketball as well, having the AFL nines as well. It was just I, two young kids, two nights out of the house, and I was like, "Oh, this might be a good point to wrap it up." And uh, but I did love playing AFL nines. It's a great game, uh, particularly for as you get older, um, and you don't want to play footy while you know getting smashed or crunched every two seconds. Yeah, that's you've it. got a job to go to and you've got kids to, to chase after. Um, yeah, it is, it is a good game. I do I do miss it actually. Yeah, I see some of the um, was it the Bull Sharks you were a part of? I see them the still Bull running. Sharks, the mighty Bull Sharks. I think we won. Uh, geez, I lost count of the flags we won. Um, we used to win the flags when um, when I was at Kingsway. We, hey, yeah, and during the winter seasons, we were a winner side because um, that was when all the real footballers went and played back in their normal teams. But in the off season in summer, they'd all come and try to stay fit. So our team would would drop down the ladder a bit. But in winter. The Sharks were hard to beat. That's it, mate. Yeah, and like after I stopped umpiring, I joined the Fuglies and um, yeah, that's that's a way to obviously keep us fit. But we had a few good players, mate. We had um, Tim Hullahan came and played for us for a bit. With, oh yeah, um, yep. Ian Perry from Adelaide. He's yeah, playing, and we've just now signed. Obviously, signing is not the right language. <laughs> But we've been having Chance Bateman kicking around with us for the last Jeez. couple of uh, seasons. so That's not bad at all. We've been doing all right. Obviously, we, we rely heavily on some individuals if we want to win many games. But um, yeah. uh, it's good fun. Speaking of which, I don't want to make this all about a roast about me or anything like that. But have you ever experienced umpiring the way you experienced it from me, mate? <laughs> I, no, thought- I, thought you were good, I thought you were a good umpire. It's a really hard game to umpire. Like, mm. I think it's a, it's a really tough game to umpire because it's, it's kind of a mix between, like, you know, touch rugby, footy, netball. Like, it's it, – and, and you know, particularly those um, – the contests in the forward line and all that sort of stuff. And, and you've got one umpire typically in every game. So you're running up and down and you're trying to see who's got last touch. and Like, it's it's a lot. Um, and, and back then when we were playing, it was still a pretty new game. So there just wasn't – I mean, if we didn't have you there, we had no one umpiring. You know, it was yeah. that hard to get umpires. So, no, I thought you always did a really good job. Um, I was always umpiring. heckling the players a bit as well when the ego started getting You did, you did like to chirp a little bit. You were a bit chirpy, which I don't mind, though. I don't mind a bit of that because at least you know you can give a bit and take a bit. You know? Yeah, exactly. I figured as well that, um, you know, I didn't want anything to get out of hand because everyone's got their testosterone built up for the week. and They do. They were looking forward to a punch on or something. So if I kept it light-hearted, they were usually all right. But I remember there was one time you were, you know, right on the line, so that 30-metre kick, and it was right on the boundary. 
And as we, um, I was doing, I'd stand behind the player, so I got the same angle as them. So if they had a crack at me, I'd be like, man, I've got the same view as you, you know. Yeah. Um, and I said something along the lines of, oh, you know, how's Channel 7's wages paying for those flash new Nikes or something like that? <laughs> and you slotted this goal, turned around and was like, it's better than when you get paid here to an umpire, mate. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, oh, I thought, oh, not many people have been able to give it back to me in a way that shut me right up. So well, I'm glad I kicked the goal, otherwise he would have had me on toast. Yeah, oh, that's, <laughs> that's it, mate. Well, look, let's get into what you're doing at the moment. You're obviously, um, as Dale Thomas likes to admit, that you're the, the unofficial mayor of Perth on the Footy Talk podcast. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, what, what are you doing in Perth? Obviously, with Channel 7, but um, what does that actually involve? Um, yeah. Okay. So the during the footy season, it's a busy it's a busy um, sort of week for me. I'll, I'll do Channel Seven from Sunday to Thursday, reading the news, and that's sort of the end part of the day when you present the news on the desk. But the main part of the day is um, you know collecting stories, um, talking to people, making phone calls, uh, contacts, putting stories together. Uh, managing a team. We've got a team here in the sports department, which I look after. Um, and in that part of that is some rostering stuff and admin stuff, you know, along with it along the way. And then on top of that, uh, I do some stuff with Triple M, which is uh, three days a week uh, in the mornings uh, with their breakfast shows and then, and another standalone show on a Saturday morning. And then I started this year doing some commentary for them as well, which was 10 games, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then I'll also write a column each week for uh, the West Australian, which goes in on Saturdays. And I've just recently added, you, you mentioned the Footy Talk podcast, I've added that into the rotation as well. So it is a really busy week, particularly during footy season, but I do find um, it's all about balance and all of those things balancing really well together. So, you know, I can do the Footy Talk podcast or the Hardball Gets podcast without having to do too much research because I've been working in that space you know, the whole week and the whole season. So I've got a backlog of information. I've already, um, you know, been covering stories. So it all kind of works together and the same with Triple M and, and Channel 7. So I think you can overfill your cart and um, I'm very wary of not doing that. Um, and I think at the moment I, I've got a really good balance and a really good mix and it keeps me um, stimulated creatively. You know, they're all very different roles. The TV roles very different to the radio role, different to the commentary, different to the writing um, and you can obviously it's different again on a podcast. So I, I like having a bit of everything because it does keep you, um, yeah, creatively sort of um, inspired throughout what can be a very long season. Mm, yeah. Is it normal for most journalists to have to do multiple companies, multiple time slots um, and all that? It's not, I wouldn't say it's normal um, and it, and I wouldn't say it's have to. I, I think it's it's one of those things that the longer you're at this, the more opportunities pop up. Um, so, you know, I wasn't getting offered radio gigs five years ago. Um, you know, podcasts are a bit of a different story. Um, you know, I wasn't writing in the paper five years ago. I wasn't sort of hosting any events. I wasn't calling any footy. So I think it's one of those things that over time, the more established you get, the more things start to open up. Um, when I started, you know, a lot of those jobs, which still have people in those jobs, you know, guys like Tim Gossage, guys like Mark Reddings, guys like Barra, uh, Basil, um, Lockie Reed, like these guys, um, you know, really strong performers in the industry and they were really, they were doing all of those jobs. And then over time, once you get a bit more established, you, you start to get a little piece of the pie for yourself, which is nice. And I, now I know why those guys did all those extra things because, one, there's extra money involved, but, two, it does, it, it's more interesting to, to diversify and have a few different 
things. So um, I don't think it's normal, and I, I think a lot of people would like to do some extra stuff, but it's not necessarily there. Other people just want to keep it simple and want to just have one one gig um, and really try to master that. And that's one thing I think when you're coming through, when you're first starting out, you shouldn't want to try to do 30 different jobs or five different jobs. You really should just be getting one and should be focusing on that one job and trying to become really good at that one. And then once you've got some reps and you've got that one down pat, which should really take you five, six, seven years, then you should maybe expand. So I've always felt like for me personally, things opened up at the right time. I wouldn't have, if it had come sooner, I might not have been able to handle it or whatever. But um, yeah, I, th- I think for me, it's, it works, but for everybody, it's different. Yeah, well, that's, that's good advice just about any kind of job by the sounds of it, you know, like yeah. hone in on your skills before you jump in too quick. And so in a bit more of a nitty-gritty scenario, like one of the things that you notice when you're watching the footies, you get a lot of former players being the commentators and, yeah. um, you know, being the special comments and all that. And before you know it, there's a whole panel of only former players and no purely media people i think mark howard is probably one of those few people that really still gets to showing his face in those scenarios do you ever feel like that you kind of feel uh, i don't know that people are getting their jobs purely because they were former players and they're pushing you guys aside or is it they're actually filling the role that's kind of been required to be filled or do you know what I yeah, mean? it's a good question oh, yeah it's a good question i think before i got into the industry i kind of did feel a bit that way i was like oh geez most of the jobs because when, you, when you're trying to get into it, you're like, geez, there's not many jobs and so many of the jobs are taken by guys who used to play. But now that I've been in it for a while, I do I do think you need those people, right? Because, you know, I can research, you know, I can love the game, I can watch as much footy as I like. I haven't played the game. So it, it, when you have played it at that level and, for you know, for most of those guys at such a high level for so long, you do understand it differently. But my big thing with past players is the, the ones who are good – I think are the ones who can really take you inside the game and they can really make you see. It's not just as simple as, okay, he played, so that means he can have a microphone. But I think for some of them, they can really add layers to it and that helps the viewer. Um, whereas that's something that necessarily in that space, I can't do anyway. So I, I think in a perfect world, you have a mix. You have a mix of trained broadcasters and, and journalists and you have some past players now what tends to happen now is you see guys like gary lyon who was a fantastic footballer he's been in the media so long that he's now more of a host than an expert um that does confuse me sometimes like him jason dunstall other guys who have been around in the media for so long jared healy's another one where they're asking the opinion of other players as if they don't already know the answer which i find is strange you know if you've got gary lyon sitting there asking Jonathan Brown about what it's like to be a centre-half forward. I'm like, Gary, you were a bloody good centre-half forward. Like, you know, you already know the answer to that. So I do think it is strange in that way, which is why I think it, you do really need a mix of the people who are, you know, like me, who can ask the questions that maybe the punters at home also don't really know the answers to to these experts. So, yeah, I, I don't think – I don't begrudge it. Um, I think there's a place for everybody in it. Um, it, it is – Ideally, you have at least one broadcaster on every panel, and I mean traditional broadcaster, like as in, you know, a non-player. Um, and there are plenty of them. Um, Hamish McLaughlin does a fantastic job. You have guys like uh, Hutto who does a bit of hosting. Um, you have Jared Waitley, obviously. Yeah, so th- there are a number of guys who do it. It's just, yeah, you know, I suppose it's it, it's probably a do- and and Fox Sports has gone down that model severely in terms of a player-dominated space. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, 
yeah, it's just interesting to hear that perspective because, you know, from the, like, you know, random spectator looking on kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, poor media people are getting pushed aside, you know, so. Yeah. Um, obviously, like, when you're, like, you're a journalist that's quite often, like, popping out, um, well, no, I shouldn't say popping up, you're the one who's pushing out some things that haven't been said yet kind of thing and it might be, like, trade rumours, Lockie Neal with this or um, things like that. How? Yeah. How do you typically find these things out as a, a journalist? Is it <laughs> private investigator sitting outside that person's doorstep or is it they um, just, you know, the right people and all that kind of stuff? Like what actually happens when it comes to breaking a story? Um, definitely no private investigators. I, I think <laughs> if you maybe there's levels of journalism, you know, crime or politics or something that maybe that might happen in extreme cases, um, but not not necessarily in sport in my experience anyway. Um, it tends to happen, like breaking stories tends to, one, it's, it, I've always said it's the hardest thing to do when it comes to being a, a sports broadcaster is to get to the point where you can confidently break stories, you can have enough contacts that you can get stories and you can communicate them in the right way and people will actually listen. So that really didn't happen for me for probably, you know, at least eight, eight or nine years. And I um, then just sort of it, it accelerated pretty quickly. But it's not like... It's not like people are ringing you all the time going, hey, got this juicy scoop for you, here's a story. Most of these things come about through conversation with people who who have the information. Like that, there's, there's a bit of a, a misconception that, you know, like people will drop you news because it suits them. It's not necessarily the case, but if you have enough conversations with people who are, who are actually involved directly in the situation... Uh, and they trust you enough, you know, they might give you something. If you, but you have to ask the questions first. In my experience, it's all about the questions that you're asking. I reckon maybe once or twice a year you might get a phone call that actually gives you something without having to ask. Most of the time it comes from, hey, I haven't spoken to this person in a week. I should probably give them a call, chat about 10 different things. And, and of those 10 different things, there might be something in there that's brand new information or interesting information and with all those things, there's a level of on-the-record, off-the-record conversation, and, and you, you can't burn that either. So I might, yeah, there's probably 10 things that I, I sort of have on the burner right now that, like, I, I, I won't report because I've been asked not to or it's just not the right time um, or there's nothing to gain from it for anybody involved. Yeah, okay. So you sort of put that to the side. And then there's other stuff where, you know, you can report it or you can report Maybe you don't have the first bit of information, but you can see the story out there and you can give it some, some more clarity or you can add a layer to it. But, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's hard to explain, but I, I think it's something that does take time. It takes a lot of trust and it's also delicate because if you if you screw it up, if, you, if you're trying to break news and you screw it up once, twice, a few times, you'll get a reputation as somebody who doesn't get it right. Mm. Um, and then, it, you know, you can have 100 stories be right and you can have two that sort of, you know, go the wrong way and you can ruin your credibility a bit. People will give you a chance, like, you know, if you frame it in the right way, people will give you a bit of a, a pass every now and then if something is not a 1,000% correct but it's pretty close. But most of the time you better be right because, you know, you only get so many chances at that. Yeah. And do you feel like, I suppose, when it comes to those breaking of the news stories that, I suppose, how do you filter what is relevant? to share even if it's like they've said yeah you can share this or whatever 
But it's like, how do you go, even though I've been allowed to, I still don't really see the point in sharing that. How, like, what kind of boxes do you say are your priorities? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny. Like, there'll be some stuff that, like, you think, oh, that's probably, that's not that exciting information or that's not even brand new information. And then, you know, a week later you'll see somebody else reporting it as brand new information and you think, oh, okay, well, maybe there was more interested in that than I thought. That happens all the time. And you get a little frustrated with yourself for thinking, oh, geez, maybe I should have done something with that. But, yeah, my big thing is I want to be 100% sure. I want to make sure that the people involved are okay with the story being out there um, because one story, however big it is, isn't worth burning a source for that you might want to call, you know, every couple of weeks for the next 10 years. So you've really got to look after those long-term relationships. So it's really a filtering process. The thing is these days most most information is, is interesting information in the footy world. Like people – like yesterday, for instance, Matthew Flynn potentially joining West Coast, they're interested in him. Now, that's exciting for Eagles fans because they haven't had a great year and they're like, hey, who's this Matthew Flynn guy? And they start looking up Matthew Flynn or maybe some of them already know him and – um, you know, they start talking themselves into it and you start to piece together how your team's going to look next year. And that stuff is exciting for, for supporters because um, they need hope. Um, so that's why all that, that trade stuff and the draft stuff and all that stuff is really, it gets a lot of a lot of traction. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything that's irrelevant that you put out there. Maybe some stuff's more exciting than others. But, yeah, I think it's just about, one, being correct and, two, making sure you're not going to burn anybody involved. Yeah, awesome. And so I'm going to just refer to a, a current example and hopefully you can kind of just, I suppose, shed some light about what would have happened from the journalist's perspective. So, you know, Braden Maynard did the big hit on um, Brayshaw and it was reported yeah. that he went knocking on his door with some flowers and chocolates or who knows what. I suppose in that story when it gets broken, um, what is the likely scenario from the journalist's perspective? Is it um, a player was annoyed about that and they rang him and said hey mate like just letting you know about this or is it yeah i suppose how, how do you think that that was broken i think it was tom morris who broke that story uh yeah i think it was tom yeah um well tom's tom's like one of those journos who's got a, a long track record of breaking stories like he probably puts out more stories a day than most journos i would say it's, it's sort of like this bit this bit this bit lots of different stuff throughout a day um so he goes at a pretty hardcore pace and I would say, I mean, I'm speculating. I have no idea how that story would come about, but I would suggest it's probably come from one of two places, either either someone at Collingwood who, yes, was like, hey, I, you know, we didn't appreciate uh, – sorry, someone at Melbourne saying we didn't appreciate that or someone at Collingwood saying, hey, we want this out there, that he did a nice thing, right? And, again, it probably wouldn't have been someone ringing Tom saying, hey – can you get this out there that he delivered some flowers and, you know, it was probably more they were having another chat and he might have said something along the lines of, hey, how's, you know, how's Brayshaw? Is he, you know, do you know if they've spoken? Oh, actually, yeah, he, you know, he went around there with some flowers and stuff. Oh, okay. And, and, and then that becomes relevant because, you know, it turned into a pretty big part of the story. So I would imagine that's probably how that came about without knowing, you know, I don't have that relationship with Tom where we would talk about that. So I, I would imagine that that's probably how it came about, um, in the past, he's had pretty good sources with Melbourne um, on some stories. So, you know, you tend to find some journos have stronger links with some certain clubs. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I'm pretty dialed into the two WA clubs here because that's where I'm based. Um, so everybody has their different spaces where they can get stories from. So um, I don't know, but I would imagine that that's sort of how it came about. And if you look at it from Collingwood's perspective, there's 
there's a, maybe a reason to get that out there, that he looked like he was doing something kind. And from Melbourne's perspective, it was from them, you know, that he did this, but they weren't that appreciative of it. You know, the moment turned a bit weird. So it could have been either side, really. Yeah, okay. And I'm going to throw one more scenario at you. So the Damien Hardwick signing with Gold Coast, it yep. was kind of said pretty much as soon as he left Richmond, maybe a week after or something, that I think Caroline Wilson was like, oh, yeah, he's going to go to Gold Coast. Do you think in that situation it's so early on and it was literally months later before anything was actually confirmed? Do you think that that is a credible source of information or is that a, she's just having a pop shot throwing darts at a board? Nah, look, one thing I've learned about Caroline Wilson is that she's very rarely wrong um, and anyone who doubts her is um, finds themselves usually on the wrong side of history. Um, you might remember the one with Sam Mitchell and Alistair Clarkson and how she was adamant it just wasn't going to continue and everyone at Hawthorne was saying it was. I think Sam Mitchell and Clarko both said it was and then guess what? It didn't. She knows stuff. She's very, very good. Uh, I know not a lot of people – I know there's a lot of people who dislike Caro. You know, journos are polarising figures. But you can't deny that she's she's bloody good. So I would imagine that something like the Hardwick situation was the wheels were probably in motion as far back as then. And you know, for her to report it and say that, I would say that she would have had some extremely good information that that was the likely scenario. I think from memory, Caro's got Richmond ties with with within her um, past, and I think you know she's probably got some of that story. I don't know how she would have got the story, but maybe it came via Richmond, uh, which would make sense, right? So. Yeah, I, I, I would I would say it's she definitely would have been having a pot shot. No way, she's um, she's she's a better journo than that. Yeah, um, and this one's a bit of an out there question. Um, it's not that it's necessarily ethical, but when you've got stuff like that and information like that, you know, the punting websites will be like, "I'll oh, put your bet on who's going to be the next coach." As a journo, are you guys even like allowed to be involved in any form of betting, let alone doing stuff when um, you've got intel? Yeah, it's a good question. I, look, I think the rules, the hard and fast rules are if you're going to be at a game, so let's say I was calling Fremantle-Carlton on a Saturday night, then you can't place a bet on that particular game within 24 hours of the start, I believe, and during while you're at the stadium. I think that's the only hard and fast rule. I, I'm a bit lucky because I don't really bet that much like I, I'll make very small bets with one mate who, who lives overseas and we make five dollar bets on stuff and, and we always lose um, so <laughs> Most like people it do. Doesn't, yeah it, exactly it doesn't really impact my um, day-to-day I know there's a lot of um, people in the footy industry who are big punters and that you know that that's you know up to everybody they can do whatever they like but in terms of like the story stuff that is interesting because there are markets for that stuff now you know like um, who's going to be the coach of, you know, Richmond this year? Is it going to be Uze? Is it going to be McQualter? Well, if you're the journo who gets, you know, the information first, you might have a 10-minute a, a window where, yeah, you probably could place that bet. I think there's risk involved in that because if let, let's say you did, you got that information and you went and put 10 grand on Adam Uze to be the coach because you know it's going to be Adam Uze. Well, whoever you bet with is going to see that bet, and then they're going to they're going to put two and two together. And next thing you know, you're getting investigated, and your career's probably over. So, like, this it's it, it, to me, it's not worth sense. it anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, common sense in your brain probably should you shouldn't tell you not to do that. Like, I yeah, I I've never really had that situation where I've been confronted with being able to bet on information that I've had. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I haven't really thought of it that way. I suppose there's there's other ways, and this is why they would have the 24-hour market thing. You know, you can't bet 24 hours before if you knew um, like a full forward was going to be a laid out and you knew that that probably meant that someone else was going to be starting at full forward and maybe they're a first goal-kicking chance that they wouldn't have been before. Um, so there'd be stuff like that, I suppose, that would pop up. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that if you were at the ground and you're walking in and you, you happen to be walking next to someone and they say, oh, yeah, so-and-so is probably not going to get up, and maybe you have that information before other people, that, that actually could be, you know, used in betting. So I'm, I, I'm guessing that's why they ban it within the 24 hours yeah. of the game you're attending. Yeah. yeah, I think it's certainly, like, not a good look and not a good... Um, yeah. yeah. But, like, I can, bet on the, I can bet on the Brownlow. I can bet on... I don't think I can bet on Norm Smith medal if i'm going to the grand final right like i think like unless i bet like now yeah like three weeks before or even even three days before is probably fine but if i'm going and i can't i can't bet on the day on the way to the game for instance yeah um, that would be yeah, problematic so while we're, we're going to change subject a little bit you've obviously got um, a lot of knowledge about west coast and Fremantle. now they're they're a really rich club um i think from stats or from reading it's about like the second richest club or the richest um but obviously every team still has salary caps so I suppose from your intel and knowledge, do you know how money from rich clubs gets spent? Because you can't really spend more on players and how do they make it in a performance-enhancing way? Yeah, good question. Um, So there's a salary cap, obviously, which you can only spend up to a certain amount on your players. And then there's a thing called the soft cap, which restricts how much money you can spend on football-related spend uh, costs. So, you know, that can be as much as how much you pay your coach to how many bags of footies you can buy. Um, It it goes right through everything footy-related. If you want to buy a new handball net, if you want to buy um, some new tackle bags, like that all comes under the same thing. So... It's very difficult to find ways to spend money outside of those spaces. Um, now, you could do that in administration, which is a good way for clubs to make money. You know, you can have marketing teams and you can have um, bigger media teams and you can have community engagement, you know, people and sales people and all that sort of stuff, which will help you, you know, bring more money in and put yourself in, in a stronger position in the community. But in terms of actual on-field football, uh, performance, it's very hard. And that's why you're seeing that with West Coast now, right? If you're a fan, you're going, hey, we've got all this money. Let's let's be better. Let's find a way to use it. Well, it's very difficult because the AFL is right on top of all this stuff. You can't even, like, hire, you know, an assistant sales guy who just happens to be, you know, someone who can also be your assistant coach. Like, you can't go, hey, Luke Shuey, do you want to be in the marketing department? And just while you're here on your lunch break, can you come down and train some of the midfielders? It doesn't work like that. You, you know, you'll get found out pretty bloody quickly and the fines are massive. So uh, I, I think it's difficult. And I, I think you'll find that a lot of the clubs are pushing back on that too. They'd like to spend more money on football and they'd like to have more support. Um, because the one issue with that soft cap is medical. All the medical stuff comes under there as well. And in a, in a time where, you know, we're so worried about concussion and player welfare, I don't think we should be keeping medical in that section. I think medical should be separate. You can spend as much know, as you want you or a cap. Well, whatever you need to. Maybe there's another cap. So, you know, you don't have – West Coast don't have eight doctors and North Melbourne has one. Mm. But, you know, like y- 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 there maybe has to be a separate space where it's like, right, you've got a separate budget for this and, and it's a pretty pretty decent-sized one because I think that's one space where you can't be cutting back on that 
just so that you can buy another bag of footies or have another assistant coach. Like, so it makes it very tough for teams. Yeah, cool. Oh, well, it's insightful. I didn't know about um, all that, so that's cool. And then when it comes to, like, we're talking about the salary cap, like, you see a lot of reports come out um, about, you know, how much money they are on. Are these quite speculative or are they quite factual? Like, in the US, they share yeah. the contracts publicly, you know, so you know exactly what everyone's on. Yeah, it's quite speculative. Um, like, you'll see the, you know, 100 highest earners or whatever it comes out in the Herald Sun or whatever. Uh, like, I know that players, um, their managers, clubs get really shitty at that because they're like, you know, it's nowhere near it. You know, that's not, not even close to the mark. It's much less than that. Some cases it's more. And, and often the way these contracts work nowadays is, like, you might have a contract that's, say, $3 million over four years, but it's not evenly spread. Um, so you might earn more in the first year or the final year and, um, you know, less in the other side um, just so that the salary cap can be managed. So, yeah, look, I think there's an estimate. You can you can, you can can make an estimate, but it's usually speculation. Unless, you know, and in my experience with player managers and um, players themselves and the clubs, they're not really that keen to tell you that stuff. Like, you know, it, it's not something they're really that happy to, to dish out, um, and that's just the way the players want it. So until that changes, I can't see it, it being any different. Yeah, and so do you think it would change if, like, let's say the minimum wage was like in the, you know, US sports, like instead of a minimum wage being a, a standard wage but being a, a 500K, is like yeah. is that what has to happen before people go? Well, yeah, okay, it might be public. Yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's an amount thing. I think it's more it's our culture. I think the Australian culture is, you know, we have tall poppy syndrome. We hate that. You know, we. I think you know, in a, in a, if you're a player, you're thinking the worst case scenario is if if you're having an average season and you're earning eight hundred grand a year, how much feedback are you getting about that? You know what I mean? Like. Mm. You know, if, and for clubs, if it, if it is public too, like, you know, is player X going, hey, hold on a minute, how come player Y is getting more than me? That's not fair. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you have issues with that stuff too. So it does open a can of worms. And, you know, sport's one of those weird ones where we feel like we should be able to know because, you know, they've got members and they've got media covering it every every single turn. But, you know, like no one, no one sort of wants – no one's giving up the information on their own jobs. You know, like I'm yeah. not telling everybody what I earn and um, neither are you and neither is, you know, police officers or teachers or lawyers or whatever. They don't have to do that stuff. Like politicians are probably the only other ones that do officially, you know, or public public servants. Um, but everybody else is pretty happy to keep it to themselves. So I imagine the players are just in the same space. I, you know, in some ways I'd like to, make, to see it made public because I think in some cases you'd be surprised how little players are earning. You know, like that maybe at one point we're earning a lot of money and now aren't earning that much and the expectation is still that they're million-dollar players and they're not necessarily that anymore. Players like Nat Fife, Nick Natanui, like, you know, Natanui's contract when time he finished was nowhere near what he was getting paid in his prime. Like it wasn't even a third of what he was getting paid in his prime, but people still saw him as a million-dollar player, yeah, um, okay. which was unfair because that wasn't the case. Yeah, and with that, like he he was obviously injured practically permanently. Is there like a way that in contracts they say, oh, because you're not playing and it's a footy related injury, you still get match payments and stuff? Like, is he still earning as much as he could have with the contract he negotiated? Every contract's different. So, typically, when you get a player 
you know, of Nananui's stature, match payments are probably not a consideration. Like, um, usually that's for younger players or fringe players where you might say to them, hey, here's your base and then... There's like a reward for a selection kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you've played 15 to 20 games and, you know, you probably you might hit a trigger, you know, a bonus, you might get an extra set amount of money if you play 15 games or if you finish in the top 10 of the best and fairest or if you're in the Australian squad or whatever. There might be triggers set up for different people for different things. So, yeah, every contract is different. Yeah, and do those bonuses come out of the salary cap? Yeah, so there's a look. The specifics of the salary cap, I'm not a thousand percent across, but I believe there is an amount, like a buffer amount, where it's like, okay, well, hold on a minute, we 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 hit all of those bonuses, so we maxed out in that space. Um, but if you don't hit all those bonuses, you might have some money left over. And what teams can do in that case is might go, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll change you know, player X's contract around, we'll pay more this year and then next year we can pay him a bit less and we might have some more money in our salary cap to go and get another free agent or whatever. So that, that's all part of the list management stuff, which um, is really complicated, but if you've got a good list manager, it's really important. Yeah, of course. So I'm really curious because obviously what I do with coaching is uh, heavily around the female game. From the media perspective, I suppose, what's your view on the state of the game? And part of that question is around you know, we get so much critical analysis about the men's performances and about just well, everything is kind of under the microscope in the men's game. Is that a measure of when we're taking things seriously or is that kind of an unfair measure to be placed on the female game as well? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I did feel like the first few years of AFLW, um, every story was positive. Like there was very, very little in terms of criticism of, you know, this team's not playing well or this player's out of form or um, this person needs to be dropped or coaches, you know, calling for coaches' heads or something. And we're still not really there. Uh, I think there's a bit more critical analysis and I think it'll just increase over time. My big belief with the AFLW is that they probably overexpanded a little too quickly. I think if we had six teams like we did at the start, I think the league would be really strong. Like I think we would have an unbelievably strong six teams. I think if you had 10, I think we'd still be in a pretty good place. The fact that you've got 18, and, and it just kept going up so quickly. You know, it went from you know, 18 was 14, was I think 12, was 8. Mm. Like it was just like bang, 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 bang. And you, you've got to find every time you add a team, you're adding in like 30-odd players. Like where are these players coming from? Because we, we haven't had decades of... Uh, females playing the sport as juniors. So you're pinching them from other sports. You're trying to teach them how to play um, in some cases. So you're looking for depth of talent and it, and it just isn't there yet. Now, it'll be there in 10, 15 years and we'll have a really strong league. But right now, there's still going to be some growing pains. And I just think if they'd slowed down the expansion a little bit and just let it progress at a natural pace, I think the standard would be much higher across the board. Having said that, I can understand why every AFL club wanted their own team um, it should be that way. It should have always been this way. But we've had to catch up as a sport. And I think in some ways the game is suffering in the short term for that. Um, but you can watch any game of AFLW now and there'll be five or six moments in that game that probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Mm. Like great finishes from the boundary or, you know, hitting hitting con uh, targets lace out or, you know, really, really impressive stuff, which I think we'll just see more and more. Um, as the years go on.
Yeah, and with the state of the game sort of thing, like and the media perspective, I suppose yeah, viewing numbers, all those sort of things. Like what, like is it sustainable? And how much time, like, well, what needs to happen before the AFL is actually profiting or saying, yeah, we can actually maintain this competition because they've only got yeah. ten games with eighteen teams. Yeah, well, with the one thing about the AFL is when they invest in something, they will stick with it. Like we've seen that with. Um, you know, GWS and Gold Coast, where they've been funneling money into for decade, couple of decades now, um, to get those things up and running. And in some ways, they're still waiting for that to be. A, you know, GWS been great on the field, but they're still waiting to be built into a super club. So I think the AFL will continue to put the time and the money and the effort in. Uh, in terms of like making money off the league, I think we're still a way off of that. You'll know when that's the case when they start selling it separately when it's not part of the same broadcast deal, when it's not it's not attached to the men's competition. Yeah. So once the rights start going up for sale separately, I think that's when you'll know that, you know, it's 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 profitable on its own and you know it's and it's a it, it can stand on its own two feet. Yeah, cool. That's yeah, great insight and perspective. Really appreciate your time. Is there anything that you can leave us with in terms of um a little bit of what you're excited about for the rest of the year. Yeah, the trade period's very busy. The draft period's very busy. Um, obviously, being you know West Australian based, the Eagles having the number one pick is a fascinating situation as to what they do with it, whether they trade it or they take Harley Reid or um, you know whatever they look to do. That's going to be a pretty fascinating sort of six to eight weeks leading up to that. Um, so I'm pretty interested in that. Um, and yeah, just enjoying the last couple of weeks of the footy season because it is a long year and you've got to make sure that you enjoy the grand final and that's because that's what it's all about we get bogged down in the week-to-week stuff but yeah it should be um should be a great finish to the year thanks mate i appreciate it thanks again to ryan for coming on to the show he provided certainly a great insight into the game and into sports journalism i hope you guys enjoyed it remember to share it with your friends especially those that like footy like and subscribe to the show hit the bell button if you're on spotify so you don't miss any more episodes and hit us up um, via email, sixpointscoaching at gmail.com or by Instagram at sixpointscoaching if you've got any questions you'd like us to answer in future episodes. Thanks again, guys. Have a good week.